I want to invite you guys to go ahead and turn over to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up that chapter and entering into chapter 3 this morning. While you're flipping over there, uh, I want to especially welcome you if you're here this morning visiting with us and aren't yet a follower of Jesus. If you're here this morning because you're interested in learning more about what it means to follow Him, uh, we are especially glad to welcome you because you are the answer to our prayers. Each week we pray that God will bring people to us that are uh, wondering, that are seeking, searching. And uh, this morning, one of the things that we're going to be talking about is actually really central to what you're looking for if you've come here this morning wanting information about the basics. Who is Jesus and what does it mean to follow him? One of the things you'll hear Christians talk about a lot is the gospel. It's just a word that means good news. It's the main story, the main subject of the whole Bible. And we, uh, we, we often talk, when we, when we refer to the gospel, about the fact that Jesus is... God's own son who entered the world in order to die. That he entered the world in order to die a death that he didn't deserve to die, but that we deserve to die because of our sin. Christians believe the gospel or the good news is only good because of the bad news that came first, that we were made for holiness, made to reflect something of the beauty of the God who made us in his image that our failure to, 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 to live for him and instead our, our choice to, to live for ourselves left a, a penalty for us to pay. That Jesus came into this world in order to die in our place and take that penalty so that any of us, no matter what we've done, no matter how bad our lives have been to this point, any one of us who will look to him and trust in him instead of in ourselves can be set free, can be redeemed and forgiven and given new life. That's something you'll hear us talk about a lot when we talk about the gospel. What Jesus came to free us from, penalty or the debt of our sin. But there's another big piece to the gospel, and this, this is the piece that we want to focus on especially this morning. It isn't just that Jesus came here to take away something, a penalty that we deserve, a stain on us that made us unworthy of God's presence. The gospel also involves what Jesus came to, to bring us into, not just to free us from, but to introduce us into. The gospel is a, a negative message in the sense of something being wiped away, but also a positive message in something being gained or given. And that is something we talk about often using the language of adoption. So if the gospel is partly uh, about a penalty paid, it is also about a new status given, a new identity given as a gift to anyone who looks to him in faith. And that's the piece of the gospel that John talks about in the passage we're going to look at this morning. It's just a few verses. It's not long. But in these verses comes at the, really the heart of the Christian faith, of what it is to belong to him. And we want to just meditate on them this morning. We want to just ask a simple question that hopefully uh, will be answered clearly for you. I think the text is as clear as it can be, and I, I hope you'll see that by the time we're done this morning. The question I want to ask is simply, what do you gain when God makes you his child? That's what the passage is about. What do you gain when God makes you his child? And I want to simply point you to three things from this text. I want to begin by reading it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read, beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2. I'm going to read through the first three verses of chapter 3. This is God's word to us. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called the children of God, and, and so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, if we are God's children now, we are God's children now, and, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. This is God's Word. You can be seated. What do you gain when God makes you his child? Did you notice as we were reading that there are several references to being children of God? One in verse 29 of chapter 2, everyone born of him. Then again in verse 1 of chapter 3, that we should be called the children of God. Then again in verse 2 of chapter 3, we are God's children now. There's a a theme that runs through this text. We want to try to unpack it. I, I want to point you to three things that John puts on our radar. Three things we gain when God makes us his children. Three things, in other words, that are at the heart of the promise that we call the gospel or the good news. Here's the first one. comes out in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 2. When God makes you his child, what you gain is a vocation. You gain a vocation. And here, here's what I mean by that. Uh, in the ancient world, this is one commentator helped me to see this. I wouldn't have noticed this if it hadn't been for some help. In the ancient world, they, was, they mostly assumed that you take on the family business. When you were born into a family, you, you would take on whatever your father or your mother or both did for a living. You didn't enter the wor- that world and, and look around at the options, try to decide what your college major was going to be and whether or not grad school would be necessary afterwards, then pursue that, and then at the end of it, have a career that you chose and prepared for yourself. That, that almost never happened. Actually, in that, that scenario, literally never happened. <laughs> But you almost never just picked a career either, one that was different from what your family did. Most people were born into a family that already was known for a trade. So they maybe were a blacksmith or a farmer or a baker, and their kids would become blacksmiths or farmers or bakers, and that's just how it worked. The first thing that John brings out about being God's child is is that to be his child is to take on the family business. It's to be about the same thing he's about in the world, where his agenda His mission, his purpose is yours. It comes out in verse 29, I think, especially clearly there. If you know that he's righteous, if you know that's who your father is, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's like he's saying, how do I know which kids are the baker's kids out there? Well, the baker's kids are the ones running around in aprons with flour all over their faces and their hands. That's how you know the baker's kids. They look like baker's. How do I know who the farmer's kids are? Well, they're the ones that got mud on their shoes and they smell like manure. That's how you'll know the farmer's kids. Well, how do I know who the children of God are? Well, the ones who've been born of him, they practice righteousness like he does because he's light. God is light, John has already told us. In him, there's no darkness at all. His purpose in the world is goodness. It's always worthy. He's got no reason to hide He's seeking what is good, what is best, what is right at all times. And, and you'll know who his children are because they'll do the same thing. They'll be about his business. They embrace what he loves. They'll seek what he seeks and want what he wants. They'll want to please him. Now, I think that, that this image for what it is to be a child of God helps understand what verse 28 means too. Verse 28 is a warning. It says, abide in him 
so that, so that when he appears, you'll have no reason to shrink back in shame. What's that warning about? I think, I think it helps to sort of build out this parenting analogy John's working with. It's clear that's what he has in mind. He's using parenting, relationship of a father and a child, to try to understand what it is to, to relate to God through Jesus. I think we kind of build out that parenting analogy a little bit. Verse 28 starts to become a little more clear. And what you want when you're parenting a child, what you want, what you want is for that kid to internalize what you're trying to teach them. You want them to just get it for themselves and want it for themselves. You want them to not need you to be standing there watching them in order to obey, in order to embrace what you've told them is good for them and for the other people that they live around. And, and you want them to not need you to have scripted every possible scenario. It's not like you, you don't want them to say, well, you, I know you said that I couldn't punch my brother in the face. That's why I punched him in the stomach. I mean, you said not to do the face. I didn't do the face. You want them to not need a complete itemized list of all the ways in which the principle you've taught them might apply in these situations and then, and then feel the freedom to go off, off book if, if, if it's not in the list. You, you want them to just get it and then to be about it, whether you're looking at them over their shoulder or not. And I think what John's trying to say in verse 28 is that, is that we ought to abide in him Meaning, bring him into whatever it is that we're facing, whatever it is, whatever decisions in front of us, whatever goal we're pursuing, whatever it is that's in front of us in our lives, we want to abide in him so that he's there with us even if we can't see him. So that we're seeing and processing what's in front of us in light of him. So that we see he's implicated in what we're doing. And what happens when a child knows what their parents would want but choose to do their own thing because their parents aren't there. What happens to that child when they've been living as if they don't have a parent in that moment and their parent shows up? The reaction is shame, isn't it? Because the facade has just dropped. I mean, up until that moment, they felt the freedom to behave like they didn't have a father who told them otherwise. They had chosen not to abide in their relationship with their parent in that moment. Their parent shows up, they shrink back in shame. They know they're seeing themselves in a new way in that moment. That's what John doesn't want for us. He wants us to not need to have our father looking over our shoulder to be about the family business. Like a, fa- like a farmer who leaves his kid to take care of the farm while he goes to the, to the town for supplies. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have to be looking over his kid's shoulder to know that his kid's not, you know, like laying out in some prairie somewhere, chewing on grass or fishing at the creek instead of milking the cows and making sure that the horses and the chickens are fed. He wants to know that, that, that his kid is about the family business, whether he's there or not. And, and, and John is wanting us to be about the father's business, righteousness, goodness, being witnesses for him in the world, whether he sees us or not, so that when he comes back, what he'll find is us wanting what he wants, whether he's there to tell us or not. The antidote to that kind of shame that we could feel at his appearing if we chose to live as if we didn't have him as a father is to abide in him. That's what John says in verse 28. It just means to bring him into it, to live in light of this ongoing relationship you have with him, what he's told you about who he is and what pleases him and what life he's called you to, the vocation of being his children, 
to embrace it and bring it into whatever it is that you're facing, to live like you've got a father, whether he's there to see you or not. That's what John's calling us to. It's what it means to be God's child. It means seeing everything, even unscripted things, through this relationship so that when he appears, he'll see me living with him, not apart from him. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about what it is to love the world. And earlier in chapter two, that was John's subject. Don't love the world. Don't love the things in the world. And, and we talked about what it means to love the world is to love the things that are around us as if God didn't create them, as if he didn't give them to us, as if he didn't assign rules that are good for us and for other people and how we use the things that he's made. To love the things of the world as if those things don't have a God behind them. To love them independently of him. And what John is saying here is that when you're his child, you, you're about the family business because you bring him into everything, even if, even if you can't see him. So that when he appears, you got no reason to shrink back in shame. What does it mean to, to be God's child? What do you gain? Well, the first thing John's showing us is you gain a vocation. You gain a family business. You gain righteousness as your calling in life. That's the first thing. And that's something John is going to keep on unpacking throughout chapter 3. We're going to be back to that same subject in the next couple of weeks. What's interesting to me here is that John takes a little break. He breaks off from this connection between being God's child and being righteous, like God is righteous. And, and he just riffs for a few verses on what it is to be loved well by God. It's, I, th- I think the reason he does that is that he knows He knows that the people he's writing to, he knows that that people like us are wired to hear this talk of righteousness and flip the order of where righteousness comes from. He knew that we'd be hardwired to assume not that you're born of God and therefore you're righteous because you're into that family and that's the family business and that's what it looks like to be born of God. He knew we, we wouldn't like that order, that we would... We're hardwired to flip the order so that we're righteous, therefore we have a place in God's family. That, 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 that being loved by him, being embraced by him, having a belonging in his family comes because we're righteous, rather than being righteous because we're born of that family. He knew we'd be tempted to flip that script because we're all prone to, to thinking we'll get from this life what we can earn. With family here as a reward for good behavior, not a gift of love to undeserving sinners. That's what he knew we would do. And, I, and John knows that, that the kind of righteousness that matters to him, the kind of righteousness that really reflects something about God, it never comes from fear. It never comes from worrying that you might slip up and fall out of God's favor and love. The kind of righteousness that matters to him always is rooted in love, not fear. It's always rooted in knowing who you are and who God is to you. It's a byproduct of a relationship of love that already exists. Righteousness doesn't lead to a relationship with God. If you're not a Christian this morning, you need to know this. Jesus is not asking of you to clean up your life, to become like him, perfect in all your ways. And then as a reward for your faithfulness, I will give you my love. We, we tend to expect that of him because that's how so many other relationships operate. But, but that's not what the gospel says about who he is. Just the opposite. I mean, even in verse 29 of chapter 2, John is saying, you know the people who've already been born of him because they're righteous. 
Righteousness comes from being born of him, from having a place in God's family. And that's why I think in the first few verses of chapter 3, knowing that we'd be tempted to get this wrong, to get this order wrong, John comes right back around to God's love for us that marks us off, that initiates, that comes for us when we want nothing to do with him. That's what his subject goes to in verse 1 of chapter 3. The second thing you gain when God makes you his child, besides a vocation, what you gain is a name, a new identity, a new place, a belonging in the world so that you know who you are and, and, and who is for you. So if you think about vocation as the kind of function of God's children, when you're God's child, this is what your life is for. This is a family business. Think vocation, think function. Then when you, when you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, what, what you have is the status of one who is God's child. Moved from the function of God's children in the world, being about his business, to the status of God's children in the world, being beloved, adopted, brought in. And John just can't get enough of it. He is blown away that this is true. It's so, it's so lost in the way that this reads in our English versions. I mean, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. The way that it's written is, what, are you kidding me? He did what? It's the same kind of, this see what kind of love is, is often used of a foreign country. Like, what does that come from? If you're in a foreign land experiencing something you've never experienced before, something that's just blown up your categories. It's the same phrase that's used uh, by by the Jesus disciples in one of the Gospels. One of the stories about Jesus is that he was sleeping on a boat in a storm. And this storm comes up, it's tossing the boat around. The disciples, his friends, they're managing the boat. They're trying to, they're fighting for their lives. They're afraid they're going to be either sunk or thrown overboard. They think their life is flashing before their eyes they think it's all over and they're screaming crying out for their lives Jesus is asleep he finally wakes up he speaks a word he says peace be still and all of a sudden the wind stops and the waves stop and it's just calm and the disciples say what kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him this is the phrase that, that John has. What kind of love is this? That we should be called children of God, and, and we are. We are. I, uh, I, uh, I, I think that, that to get amazed by his love, you have to realize who it is that he's loving. John gets it. It wouldn't be amazing at all if God just compensated somebody for good behavior. That's familiar. That's even just. That's not otherworldly. That's not foreign. It's entirely familiar. You might even say necessary. Somebody cuts your hair, you pay them for it. Maybe even tip them. Somebody fixes you a meal at a restaurant. You pay for the cost of the ingredients and the expertise behind the the, the preparation of the food. They deserve it. Somebody cuts your grass. You pay them whatever that's going for these days. It's just cause and effect. It's simple, isn't it? And it's right. And so we think if somebody's righteous, God blesses them, gives them his friendship. He protects them. He embraces them. 
But that's not otherworldly love. That's nothing to marvel at. That's just the way things work. John's amazed. He's piling up these phrases, just trying to get words to it. What kind of love? We should be called God's children. We are. We are. Because, because he knows who we were when God's love found us. He knows what's true of God. He's told us this at the very beginning of his letter. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. So what we have here is a God who is absolutely, completely, with, with total purity, committed to everything that is good. He has nothing to hide. He is never underhanded. He never has reason or desire to take a bribe. He does not seek his own in his relationship with his creation. He gives and he gives and he glories in all that he has made. God is light, in him is no darkness at all. But but John knows what's true about us is that at our best, we are tainted by darkness and that more often than not, we embrace it. We want it that way because the darkness promises us autonomy. It promises us the ability to choose what we want, pursue what we want on our terms as if we don't have a father who knows better, who's told us otherwise, as if we aren't surrounded by other people who'll be hurt by what we do. We love the darkness because of what the darkness provides us, an illusion of freedom. Now, if you think about God as, a, as one who is purely and totally committed to light, and you think about that as a line going off in this direction, and then you think about us as, as people who love the darkness rather than the light, then you'll have to think about us as a line going off in this other direction. And it doesn't take a math whiz to know that those two lines don't intersect Those two lines only get further and further and further. What happens when those two lines go their separate ways is alienation. And what's happened through Jesus is intervention. What's happened through Jesus is adoption, not alienation, not what what should have happened, but a totally new story. And that is unheard of. That is shocking. It's entirely foreign. From what country does this come? What what world are we living in that that, that we should be called the children of God? And, And we are. John is totally amazed. at the name that God would give to his children. It is marvelous. See what love the Father has given that we should be called the children of God and we are. We belong to him. What do you gain? When God makes you his child, you gain a vocation, a family business. But before you ever get onto that business, you first gain a new status in this world a belonging that is secure and based sheerly on God's grace and a love that you will never be able to deserve and don't have to. He just gives it and gives it and gives it if you'll take it. There's one more thing that you gain that I want to make sure you notice in these verses. When God makes you his child, you also gain an inheritance. 
verse 2 begins to look ahead. So verse 1 is all about what we are now. Children of God through Jesus. Verse 2, John says, what we will be has not yet appeared. What you need to know, friends, especially if you're, if you're an unbeliever this morning, just still learning what Christianity involves. One thing you should know is that Christians, at the heart of our hope, is that Jesus will actually come back to this earth. You may have encountered that idea before, maybe uh, in, in some sort of pop culture caricatured version. I hope that you'll be able to sort of set aside what you might think about what Christians think on these things and just listen to what John says. However much it may have been caricatured in your experience of this idea, you need to know there's no replacing this idea for Christians. We put everything on the promise that Jesus is coming back, that an actual person in a body as real as mine or yours lives today after he had died. He lives today, unseen by us, but coming. John says in verse 2 that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And he is pulling from that hope. He's not the only one to talk like this. Jesus himself, in John's gospel, John records there, Jesus saying, I will come again. I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That's Jesus. Then on the day that Jesus left this earth, his followers were with him. They were listening to him. He was explaining to them what their job was while they wait. And then they watch him and he rises up into the sky. Christians believe this really happened actually in history to a real man. He rose into the sky so they couldn't see him anymore. And as soon as he was gone, they're all just scratching their heads. What just happened here? So an angel appears and explains to them. Acts chapter one tells us that this Jesus taken up to heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. One day, he'll reappear. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, he says that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Hebrews says the same thing. Jesus will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He did that on his first time here but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And the whole Bible itself ends in the book of Revelation with Jesus' promise, surely I am coming soon. And John's echo, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. You can imagine these early believers, most of them, literally most of them, facing death for their faith having in their own minds living memories of Jesus, looking for his return every day. It's not hard to imagine John, the writer of this letter, waking up with that. Will this be the day? Could it be today? Friends, these guys, they didn't face death for an idea or for an ethic, you know, a new way of living in the world that seemed better, wiser than the one they had before. They faced death for allegiance to a person that they knew. To a person they had seen die. To a person whose physical body they had seen resurrected. And to a person who had told them with his own mouth that he would come back. And Christians today still cling to this hope. And with that hope, a promise that everything broken will be set right again. That all sorrow will be wiped away 
and that all of it hinges on the return of this man's body. Now, what we know about that return, what it'll be like, when it'll be, what the experience will feel like, we we don't know hardly anything about it. And John is real straightforward about that here in chapter 3. I mean, he's not... He's not shying away. He's actually stating that you, you aren't going to know much about this. He says, when he, uh, we are God's children now, he says in verse 2, and what we will be has not yet appeared yet. I mean, so so one, uh, as one writer put it, I mean, when you think about a lot that has to do with Jesus' return as this present marked, do not open until Christmas. You know, we know the present is out there, but it's not ours to open yet. We don't know exactly what it'll be like. And we need to sort of stem the curiosity that often makes us speculate on what it'll be like. John is not giving us those details because he doesn't want to feed our curiosity. He wants to feed our hope. He wants to feed our longing for a day when we will see him with our own eyes and become like him. So John doesn't want to just feed our curiosity. What does he want to do? That's where I want to end this morning, with this inheritance that God's children look forward to. I want to try to help you understand what it is and how you can claim it. What this inheritance is and how you can claim it. John says, "What we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. There's your inheritance. The inheritance of God's children is perfect, absolute likeness to Jesus. Why is that good news? I mean, all of us have a lot of hopes and dreams in this world. I mean, that's, that's how we pass the time when we got a long drive and nothing else to listen to. Our quiet moments, those moments before you go to sleep, times you got for daydreaming when you're supposed to be working, we're filling those times with hopes and dreams usually and probably not many of yours look like this. Dreaming of the day that you'll be like Jesus. At least not on the surface. But you pry a little beneath the surface and I think you'll find that that's exactly what you want. We don't have time to go into all the reasons that that's true. I just want to pull one example from what John has emphasized already in this letter. What we know about God and his son, Jesus Christ, is that he is light with no darkness. We already talked about that a little bit. And now John is saying the inheritance of God's children is to be like him. To be made light with no darkness at all. What would that be like? Can you imagine having nothing to hide? Can you imagine living without the knowledge that you keep doing the same things over and over no matter how bad you want to stop? Can you imagine living where you, and, 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 without knowing That even the best things you do, the kind of things people compliment you for and say they wish they had of their own, are mixed with self-serving motives and a desire to make a name for yourself. Can you imagine doing something good and not wanting to be noticed for it? Can you imagine living without shame? Even the most self-confident of us know shame and have trouble shaking it. Can you imagine living free of fear, free of envy, free of pride, of insecurity, free of regret, free of temptation, free of of all discontent? 
It's tough to imagine, but that's what it would mean to be like him. To be light with no darkness at all. And John's saying God's children have an inheritance waiting on them. That even though his children have chosen over and over again to embrace darkness rather than the light that he loves, God is going to give them light anyway. And that one day he will overcome even their own mixed loves. Even their own love for things that he hates. He will give them as a present a heart that only loves what's right. And what John is telling us here is that that inheritance hinges on the coming of Jesus. What the inheritance is, well, at least in part, it is being like him. Being light with no darkness at all. How do we claim it? Well, I love the way John points us to to, to this answer. Getting this inheritance, being like him, comes when we see him as he is. It's taken me a little time to get my mind around why that would make us like him. Maybe you stumbled on that too when we, when we read it. When he appears, we'll be like him and the reason is that we'll see him. What does that mean to see him? How does that change us? I think it fits with what John has said earlier in this letter that the kind of transformation God wants to work in us comes when our loves change. It doesn't come through willpower that says no. It comes from hearts of love that say yes to something different. We don't just say no to all the things that God has told us aren't good. The righteousness that looks like his is saying yes to all that is good because we love it because he does. So what I think he's saying here is that that to see Jesus changes what we love so that we become perfectly like him. Let me just work this a little bit more. To see Jesus is to love Jesus fully. It is to have eyes only for him. And that is to have a heart renovated so it only loves what he loves. Think about this like a scene in a romantic comedy. Just imagine one of the protagonists, maybe an antagonist, I don't know how you want to think of this guy, is is sort of a tomcat, you know? He's he's, He's a single guy playing the field, dating a bunch of different girls, won't get pinned down by any one of them. And then he's at this party and unexpectedly she walks in. All of a sudden, people's mouths are moving, but he's not hearing anything. Like There's just a hush that falls over the crowd for him and a tunnel vision. Everything else in soft focus, her face crisply in front of his eyes. The only sound is the sound of string music in a major key. He watches the bounce of her hair, the different tinges of her smile, depending on who she's looking at and what's going on. He sees only her. He continues to interact with other people who are around him, but he's really watching her, at least out of his peripheral vision. Does she notice me? Does she think I'm funny? What would I have to do to make sure I sit next to her when dinner gets served? He's only seeing her. And it's changed how he sees everything else. I think what John is telling us is that when when he appears... then all of us who are his children get tunnel vision. Everything else stops. And in a moment of pure transcendence, we see him as he is. 
And his beauty comes to us fully, clearly, directly, unmediated. And there's nothing that compares to what he is. And in a moment, hearts that were once impure, loving him, yes, but heads easily turned by whoever else might happen to walk by, become hearts purely devoted to him. Hearts that love one thing. When he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And for now, for now, John says in verse 3, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. To be like Jesus, to know that inheritance, to fully claim it, we must wait for the day when we see him as he is. But we don't have to wait for that day to begin the purification that is God's calling on our lives. John's saying in verse 3 here, that if we just hope in him, if we just now start to cultivate that sort of tunnel vision that sees him for who he is and sees the things of this world for what they are, Good gifts, perhaps, but no suitable lovers. If we allow the truth that everything else is passing away to put the things of this world in their proper light, to chop them down to size so that what we see in Jesus can't compare. If we hope in him, in other words, then even now our hearts are being purified as he is pure. So what I want to end with, what I want to encourage you to think about is this hope. Do you have it in you? Do you hope for his return? Would you like it if it were today? If you thought he would appear today, would you be happy? Or would you maybe rather it be a little bit later? (laughs) I think about you guys who are in the long-term medical training programs. You know, I mean, there's going to be some child of God that's, you know, a week away from finishing fellowship and actually getting some real money that, that, that Jesus returns. And on that day, that's it. So I wonder if you, as, as you think, as you think ahead to that, would, would you want Jesus to come back today? Or would you think, well, maybe, maybe just give me at least a couple years as an attending. I've been, I've been convicted of that. I've been recently nursing this hobby, bringing this book project that I've been working on a few years just kind of as a hobby in my spare time, almost, almost finished and putting the finishing touches on it and realized, okay, I'm excited about this. I'm reading this passage this week and thinking, you know, I put a lot of time in on this. It's been like years. What if Jesus came back before this book comes out? Would I be happy about that? I wonder what that is for you. One way for you to evaluate your own heart and whether or not you're loving the things of this world is to imagine whether or not you'd be glad if Jesus came before you get what you're after. And to ask your friends to help you understand what that might be in your own heart and how you might seek a hope that purifies your heart, not that you stop your medical training or whatever it is you're building towards, but that you think about it differently. That you want it in a way that's, that's submitted to Jesus and to what his return will mean for your life. That's how we 
get purified through hope. And that only comes through good friendships. You need to ask your friends about that. It's a good small group question for some of you who are going to meet tonight or, or later this week. For now, I want to pray that God will purify us as he is pure even now through this hope and that he will help us to see everything else that he's given to us as his gifts but as no suitable lovers. Let's pray that God will do that work in our hearts. Father, thank you for the love that you have shown us in Jesus even though we didn't deserve it. Even though we have not loved you, you loved us first. That is a great gift and one that we could have never predicted. I pray that you would help us to see it for the marvel that it is. That it would set us on a new trajectory of hope this morning. And that this hope would purify us as you are pure. We want to be able to enjoy the good things you've given us and not make gods out of them. We want to be able to love what you've put in front of us and not resent what you haven't. We want to be able to relate to this world without worshiping this world. And we know that that only comes through the purification of our hearts. And I pray that you would make us a people hungry for Jesus' return. No matter what. That you would protect us from loving the things in front of us more than we love the prospect of his appearing. And help us to help each other to prioritize and then to hold on for that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.